Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Well, we're still in Mark this morning. Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to be, but just a little bit before we get there, I want us to try this morning to face our fears. Now, I don't want this just to be an exercise for you. This is an exercise for me. One of my fears is reading publicly, um, and especially reading long words that I've got no idea in reality how they're pronounced. So a couple of long words are going to come up, and they are phobias. Phobias that people may have, people may have experienced or heard of. And I'm going to start with one that I assume somebody in this room is going to know what this word means. Okay, So whether I can say it or not, someone in this room is going to know what it means. If I remember to turn my flicker on. Okay, there you go. Triskaidekaphobia. Yeah, I hate, I hate doing this. Emir Jenkins, you've got a hand up there. What's that the fear of? It is indeed the fear of the number 13. So again, I should have warned you, there will be pictures accompanying all of these phobias. So if you see the name of a phobia on the screen that you are particularly afflicted by, turn away until I say it's safe to look back again. Yeah. Um, Like traditionally, we've got this idea of 13 being an unlucky number, but it goes so far in some people's lives that they're actually afraid of it. Anything to do with the number 13, seeing it or experiencing it, I presume multiples thereof and all of that sort of thing, strikes fear and terror into some people's lives. Okay, now this is one I'm assuming that there are going to be some people, not just who know, as Ems did with the last one, but some people who suffer from this one. So be careful. Cholerophobia. Cholerophobia. No, not even our psychological expert at the front knows this. Okay. Gwenan? It is the fear of clowns. So be warned, there's a clown about to come up. If you are actually genuinely terrified, well, I don't know, see. Would it be better to close your eyes knowing that there's not then going to be a clown in the room? Or would it be better to see it and to face it? Okay, yeah, fear of clowns. Like, conceptually, this one weirds me out. Not because clowns aren't weird. They're obviously extremely strange. But they've only existed for a certain period of time. So they've come into existence, and somehow people have learned to fear them. It's a very strange one, that. Okay, that's clowns. What have we got next? Here's one that I think precludes you that means, means that you can't, from living in Wales if you have this phobia, ombrophobia, ombrophobia. Does anybody know? Oh, fear of rain. Yeah, can you imagine that? I don't really know how this manifests itself or what have you, but there apparently are people who are afraid of the rain. Um, genuinely not a good place to live if that is you. Okay, now this one, I think, 
if fear of clowns is kind of like a made-up one, this is genuinely made up. No one can seriously have this one, but it's a named fear. It's got a definition in that. Pogonophobia. Pogonophobia. I should have checked. Does anybody speak like Latin or Greek or whatever, which is what I'm assuming these are kind of based on? Pogonophobia. It's entirely made up. Are you looking them up? You are look, you've got your phones out. Okay, turn your phone on silent, airplane mode. Yes, the fear of beards. Who could be afraid of that? Dear me. Right, this is one I found out is a genuine fear uh, in the last week or so. Tripop... Tri no, tripophobia. I can't see, I can't read, this is terrifying. Tripophobia, without looking them up on Google. Does anybody know what that's a fear of? It's a fear of holes. Like holes as in small holes, like honeycombs and things like that. So if you suffer from that, is anybody scared of small holes? Sieves? Nets? Things like that, nobody? Good, we're a well-rounded bunch. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, a phobia is basically, in case you weren't aware of this, an extreme, irrational fear brought on by some sort of experience or knowledge of something. Um, but there's, an, there's definitely an element of irrationalness to it. I mean, there's, there's no reason why we should fear rain, is there, when it drizzles. There's no reason why we should fear the number 13. Um, there are circumstances when we should probably be afraid. Foot is caught in a train track. Uh, where did that example come from? And a train is hurtling towards us. Yeah, that's fine. Be afraid. But when a spider appears, no, I wouldn't do that. I know there's too many of you there. Um, phobias, they're irrational fears. Well, I said we're in Mark chapter 5, um, a little bit in Mark chapter 4 as well, and four stories where four fears are revealed. Now, these aren't fears as in irrational phobias. These aren't irrational circumstances. These are four stories in which people, just like you and me, would naturally be afraid. That's what ties these four stories together. We're switching, if you remember, from last week when Jesus was telling his stories, his parables, to four stories that Mark really thinks we need to get a hold of and get a grip of to help us to understand and to see and to enjoy Jesus. And the first story is this familiar story to us, the story of the raging storm. So if you've got your Bible, the references will come up there. I'll read one or two verses and explain the stories to you. Um, basically, it's evening. Um, Jesus has been speaking to this big crowd in parables, and he says to his disciples, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they leave the big crowd where they are, they're in a boat already, and they start to make their way over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And it says in this story that a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already beginning to be swamped. Now, can you imagine being in that scenario? You're just out for a nice little row, gentle sail across a sea that you're very, very familiar with, and all of a sudden, the weather goes crazy, wind waves, just a whole lot, so much so that they can say that the boat was getting swamped. This is what we read was happening. 
though, while the disciples were panicking, that Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Can you imagine that? So the disciples, Jesus has led the disciples out, and um, they're all panicking, but Jesus is below deck, and he is properly relaxed, so much so that he's gone to sleep. So the disciples are obviously terrified, and they find Jesus, and they wake him up, and they shout at him, teacher, don't you even care down there on your pillow sleeping that we're about to die? Jesus gets up, and he speaks to the wind. He speaks to the sea. He says, silence, be still. And the wind ceased, and as great a storm as there had been, now there's a great calm. But he turns to the disciples, and he speaks to them too. And he says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? What's the fear there? Mark 4, 35 to 41, the story of this raging storm. Anybody? You can shout out. What was the fear that they experienced? They were, they were scared they were going to die. Okay? They've been used to being out on boats. They know what storms are serious storms and what, you know, is just a little bit of fog that's going to get burnt away when the sun rises. They're genuinely afraid that they're going to die. Next story. The story of a raging demon. So having calmed this storm and having arrived on the other side of the sea, Jesus gets off the boat and as soon as it says in verse 2 of chapter 5, as soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. Now this man, it says, lived in the tombs and no one was able to restrain him anymore. This is quite a picture, okay? That this guy was so consumed with... Um, uh, evil, unclean spirits, and he would do such wild things that they used to put chains around him. Chain up his hands. Okay, I can't actually break these chains. Chain up his feet, but even those weren't enough to stop him, and he would just cast those shackles aside. He ran towards Jesus and his disciples, and when he sees Jesus from a distance, he kneels down, and cries out with a loud voice. This is what he cries out. What do you have to do with me, Jesus? Son of the most high God, I beg you before God, don't torment me. Jesus had already said, even from a distance to this man and the unclean spirit in him, come out of him. So Jesus asks this man, what's your name? He's speaking actually to the unclean spirit in him. That's who this conversation is really between Jesus and this demon, if you like. And the demon answers, my name is Legion, for we are many. The story kind of intensifies. It's not just this demon that is uh, on his own, singularly driving this man insane, driving him mad. It's many. And this is what the demon does. Recognizing the power of Jesus. We've already read in Mark's gospel of Jesus' ability just to cast demons out to silence them, to still them, to be done with them, just as he'd done with the waves. This is what the demon says. Don't send us into oblivion, 
Instead, send us into that herd of pigs over there. And for some reason, we don't really know, Jesus is willing to kind of meet that request. And it says in verse 11, a large herd of pigs was there, and so um, Jesus grants permission, and it says, the herd, about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned there. And the men who were tending that flock, herd of pigs, they see this and they are terrified. It says that they ran off and reported to the town and to all the people what they had seen happen. They'd seen Jesus arrive, speak to this man, and for the pigs to run headlong off the cliff and to drown. So then all the people hearing this story, they come up, they follow the herds people, they come up to see for themselves what's happening, and it says, verse 15, that they came to Jesus and they saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. They see the good thing that Jesus has done. This healing of demonic uh, uh, manipulation over this man. And it says that they were afraid. Those who had seen what was going on, it says, described to all the people who were just arriving what had happened and told them about the pigs. That herd of pigs that you'd expect to see over there, they're now there, drowning, dead. And so the people beg Jesus to leave. If you've been going with us through Mark, that should kind of surprise you a little bit. Because up until this point, every time Jesus has done something amazing and miraculous, people have been quite excited about it. It's caused quite a stir. A crowd has come, and and usually the response has had to be Jesus having to withdraw because so many people want to be with him and near him and around him. But these people see what he's done. They hear about the pigs. They're afraid, and they beg Jesus to leave. What's the fear in that story. Perhaps this is a little bit more complicated to discern. What were they afraid of? They weren't afraid of the man anymore who would hurt them, presumably. says in the story that he'd hurt himself. When they tried to restrain him with chains, he'd break through, he'd bust through them. They're not afraid of him anymore because he's calm like the sea in the storm. What are they afraid of? To an extent. I think the fear that we see in this story is a fear of the cost of Jesus being with them. They see a positive result. They see this guy who's been set free. But in their minds, there's still this knowledge of the 2,000 pigs that have died, that have run into the, the waters and drowned because of Jesus. Now, I imagine I'm not a farmer, we've got some up there, they'll be able to tell us, 2,000 pigs, even in today's economy, is probably a pretty big deal. But you can imagine in this day and age that this wasn't just a herd that was supporting one or two people. This is a herd that was supporting an entire town or village. And it's gone. And in its place, one restored brother, friend, colleague, They see what Jesus has done, they see the cost, and they are terrified of the cost of Jesus staying with them. If he stays here and does more things, what else might it 
end up costing us. Fourth story. This is the story of the desperate father. Um, Jesus listens to them. They want him to leave the region. He gets back on the boat. He goes back across, um, back home. And when he arrives, it says there's already a large crowd there waiting for him by the sea. And it says one of the synagogue leaders, a man named Jairus, came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Now, Jairus is uh, the sort of guy, probably, who would have a lot of keys. Have you ever thought about how keys are a status symbol? The more keys you've got, the more things that you're responsible for, the more things that you have to open, that you need to lock, and things like that. And so he's the sort of guy, because he's a leader in the synagogue, who would have had a big bunch of keys rattling with him, making a noise wherever he went, just so that people knew, yeah, this is a guy who's got responsibilities. This is a guy who's got power. And he comes, doesn't actually say whether he had a big bunch of keys, but let's imagine he did. He comes with his big bunch of keys, and he falls at Jesus' feet. 23, it says that he begs him earnestly. This is what he says, my little darling daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. Jesus went with him, and a large large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now, actually, we have to press pause on that story, because that's to be resolved. Before we get to the end of Jairus' story, find the fear in his story, we are interrupted with the story of the desperate woman. So there's this big crowd pressing around Jesus, you can imagine the, the noise, the kerfuffle of it all. Actually, it's another thing that ties all of these stories together is noise. You can imagine the noise of the wind, the noise of the shrieking, yelling, demon-possessed man, or the noise of the pigs going into the sea, the noise of the crowd that's gathering around. Just nobody really knows what's going on here as Jesus is making his way to Jairus' house to help him with his dying, darling little daughter. But it says in Mark, verse 25, now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. 12 years she'd been afflicted with a particular illness. And it comments that she'd actually had to spend everything that she had trying to find a cure. So all her money, it said, had gone. Uh, asking one person and then another person, uh, trying remedies here, buying medicine there, so that everything that she had had been spent for 12 years trying to cure her from this affliction. Everything she had spent so that she had absolutely nothing left. Her piggy bank, her purse was empty. She'd heard about Jesus, it says, verse 27. And so in this throng, it might say in some translations, in this crush, in this press of people about Jesus, she comes up behind him to touch his clothes. This is what she was thinking, verse 28, if I just touch his clothes, in the other gospels, just the hem of his garment, just the edge of his robe and his cloak, I'll be made well. And she reaches out in secret, touches him, and it says, instantly, her flow of blood ceased, 
and she sensed in her body that she was healed from her affliction. At the same time, Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. So he turned around to the crowd. You can imagine just all of a sudden this stop. And he asks his disciples, who touched me? Who was that who just touched me? And the disciples think this is a weird question. <laughs> they, she's like, we're used to you asking odd questions, Jesus, but this maybe takes the biscuit. Everybody is touching you. Like we are shoulder to shoulder. You're having to barge your way through this crowd to get to Jairus' house to heal his darling little daughter. How can you ask, who touched me? The answer is everybody. But Jesus wasn't satisfied with that answer. He's looking around, he's scanning the crowd because he knows in particular someone has touched him with a purpose. The woman, it says, verse 33, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Told him what had happened to her over the last 12 years, told him how she had come up with this plan when she heard that Jesus was coming back, told him how she had reached out and touched him and how she'd been healed. And this is what Jesus says to her. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. Question, what was the fear in that story? What was she afraid of? She'd been healed. You could imagine the fear being, oh, something we might experience. I'm going to bring this to God. I'm going to bring this to Jesus. I'm afraid it might not work. I'm afraid I'll still be sick for another 12 years after this. That's not the fear. She touches him. She knows in an instant she's been healed. And yet it says, with fearing and trembling, when she hears Jesus' voice, she bows before him and tells him everything. What's her fear? Anybody? The repercussions, having a row. Yeah, we thought about this a little bit when we were looking at the leper very early on in Mark. There were certain things in this culture which made you shut off, okay? Um, leprosy, skin diseases, uh, bleeding and other bodily fluids coming out of you, things like that. Uh, being near dead people, touching these things especially made you unclean. So think about this. She, who has this sickness, who has made her cut off and unclean, has come and in seeking to find healing and restoration in herself, has without asking, touched Jesus and by implication made him unclean. She's terrified about what he's going to say, about maybe him taking back the healing, about him rebuking her, rejecting her, making her even more of an outsider than she's ever been. She's terrified of just continuing to live a life of being cut off. Would that object of her faith, excuse me, would that object of her faith reject her? Would he rebuke her? Would he restore the sickness that had left her? Would he refuse to admit her back into civil society and life? 
You can imagine that fear really rising up as Jesus cries out, who touched me? Who was that? Who dared do that? Anyway, we go back to the desperate father, to Jairus, to the important man with his keys, who's begging Jesus, come my daughter. And the, the, the language there, I'm assured by the commentators, is, is like desperate. My daughter is, is at death's door. She's not just seriously sick. This is the final throw of the dice. It says, while Jesus was still speaking to this woman who he'd healed, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother this teacher anymore? You don't really need to even read on in the story to know where the fear is here, do you? Jesus overhears this little conversation that's going on. And he turns to Jairus and he says, don't be afraid, just believe. So he takes with him Peter, James, John, and Jairus, just those. And they arrive at the house and there's a heck of a commotion going on. Um, Already there are people there who are just weeping and wailing loudly. And Jesus and this small kind of crowd that he's handpicked to go on this um, journey. They come in and Jesus says, why are you making such a commotion? Why all of the weeping? The little girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laugh at him. They're like, what on earth are you on about, mate? We've been around enough dead bodies to know that this is not a little girl sleeping. She's died. So Jesus sends them all out of the house and he takes Jairus and the girl's mother and Peter and James and John and they go upstairs and they come to the place where she's lying now and he touches her, he grabs her by the hand and it says that he says, Talitha, Kaum, as in, we all know, don't we? Little girl, get up. And immediately, It says she gets up and starts to walk around. This little 12-year-old girl stands up and walks around. They were utterly astounded. And there's there's a wonderful detail at the end of this story. If you've got your Bibles open, verse 43. Jesus, having raised her from the dead, says, get her something to eat. I love that. As if he hadn't already done enough for her. As if God could only ever be concerned with the big picture of life and death. There's this girl who he's raised up, and he says, sort her out. She'll be angry now. Give her something to eat. I love that. What was the fear? Jesus preempted it, didn't he? Uh, Before it really could manifest in Jairus' life, before it could really be articulated into the story. But what was the fear? Yeah, the, the friends who came, Charlotte was saying that there was nothing more that Jesus could do. They certainly thought that. Why bother the teacher now? He's good at making people well again, but it's past that point. It's not just disease that is afflicting your household, Jairus. Death has come. Death has come. I think it's the fear of never seeing her again. So there's these fears. 
Oh, wow, I've been going on for ages just talking about these fears, okay? There's four of them. Fear of dying themselves. Okay, that you can imagine how terrifying that is. We can, we can relate to that. The fear of the cost. Oh, well, we can have them back up. Great. I pro- oh, no. Uh, the cost of following Jesus or having Jesus amongst them. Like, if this guy stays with us, what else are we going to have to give up? The fear of losing someone and never being with them again. The fear of being exposed. Think about that woman, Jesus saying, who was it who touched me? Of death, of the cost, of loss, of being exposed. All of those fears tie these stories together. But actually, there's something else about the stories that tie them together. And they are how those fears are transformed by Jesus. I didn't, I didn't emphasize these points when we were going through them because I wanted you to see the fears. But when you look at each and every story, you see how what Jesus does in those scenarios transforms the situation. So first of all, that, that woman who had been bleeding... Her fear, the sort of fear that might keep us awake at night, of the darkness that is within us, of our problems, of our troubles, of them coming out, she encounters Jesus, and what does Jesus say to her? Don't be afraid, go in peace. I don't know whether you've experienced that sort of fear that makes you play through scenarios Time after time, conversations, outcomes. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if the other happens? Wringing your hands, being awake at night. It's horrible, isn't it? That sort of fear. And Jesus says, peace. Go in peace. He says, your sickness is gone, but more than that, take peace. He doesn't cast her off, he brings her in. And all that restlessness, all that worry, all that anxiety over the entire situation that has gone on for 12 years and has now come to a head can be gone. What an amazing transformation that is. What about the fear that Jairus was experiencing, that fear of losing and never seeing being with his daughter again? His servants had come to deliver that heartbreaking news that his worst fear had come true. Separation from the darling daughter that he'd known and loved for 12 years. But Jesus says to him, doesn't he? Don't lose hope. Like he'd given up. Now was the time. Now was the time not to just to move from fear into total and utter hopelessness. It's over finished, finito, the end. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, believe. Keep hope. Maintain it. All is not lost with me. And again, we, we can relate so easily to this, can't we? This idea of death and its finality and the separation and the relationships that have been lost the heartbreakingness of that. But Jesus says, even 
to this man who has had the most heartbreaking news delivered to him and to us today that death is not a reason for us to give up hope. That though we, we may be worried about our own death or the death of someone we love and care so much about, Jesus says, because of me, death is not goodbye. I mean, that's powerful stuff, isn't it? Jesus says, I'm not happy to call it a day when you call it a day. When you are ready to give up on everything, I say, keep on going. Keep on believing. Keep on hoping. Jesus is willing to fight to the death, to the bitter end. And as we've already spoken about with the communion, he comes out on top. What about those people who had seen the man with the chains? Sounds almost like a hymn, hymn, doesn't it? His chains have come off. Not because he's physically strong enough to break them, but because the thing that they needed to chain him up about is gone. He's been set free. And they've come and they've seen that freedom came at a cost, the cost of a great financial burden on the town. And they're terrified. If he sticks around anymore, what's it going to cost? Do you ever feel, Christians, do you ever feel like that? I'm afraid to open my Bible this morning. What on, what on earth else is God going to tell me through his word that I can't have, that I can't do? Is he going to come to me like Jesus comes to the rich young ruler and says, sell everything to follow me? I'm afraid of that. I'm afraid of what I might have to give up if I really, really commit to Christ. Maybe you're not a believer and that is the thing that is genuinely keeping you from trusting in him. You love the idea of someone who can rescue you, but you also love the idea of being in control of your own life, of being the one who calls the shots, of ultimately, when push comes to shove, being the authority above all authorities. You can relate, can't you, to the genuine fear and terror of Jesus coming into your life and it costing you something. What is Jesus? How does he transform that situation? Actually, in the story, it describes Jesus sending that man who had been set free to go and share his story. Like they'd come up, and they'd seen the, the carnage in the waters of all these pigs who have drowned. They've calculated the cost of that. They're in shock. Jesus says to the man, go and tell them what the Lord has done for you. Go and like properly lay it before them, the freedom that you now have. Go and ask them the same question that the disciples asked me on the boat. Doesn't don't you care that I'm alive now at last? And it says that when they heard the man's story, when they understood actually that he'd been set free, they were astounded. They were amazed. Jesus took their fear of the cost and he transformed it into wonder and adoration. So much so that when Jesus makes another journey back there later in the Gospel of Mark, they bring him someone else with an issue. 
uh, a man who is blind, I think it is. They're, they're willing. You can imagine that. Like, if we take him, this sick man, and he heals him, what else are we going to lose? But such is the wonder and the amazement at who Jesus is and what he can achieve in people's lives that that fear of the cost is gone. Jesus is able to do that when we truly see not just what he demands from us, but what he is able to offer us more than we could ever, ever give him. The last story then is the one of the disciples on the boat. And I leave this till last because it's, it's the most difficult one to see a transformation. Or actually, I think in this story, we're left without seeing any transformation. They're scared for their lives. Teacher, don't you care if we die? Jesus stands up. He rebukes the waves. And then he rebukes them. Why are you afraid? Fear of death. Where is your faith? Jesus says, actually, in this situation, what you should have, should have instead of fear, is faith. Trust in me that I'm a one who is going to look after you in all situations, that your days are in God's hands. And he says to them, why are you afraid? You sh- where is your faith? It's interesting how Mark records their response. It says that they were even more afraid now. And they ask this question, who is this? that even the wind and the waves obey him. I think Mark deliberately leaves us with this greater fear in their lives and this question that's left unanswered because Mark is wanting us to answer it ourselves. He's wanting us to be swept along in all of these stories, but in the story of the disciples especially, to experience and to feel that fear to have that question from Jesus, why are you afraid? What is it that you're afraid of? And how is uh, faith in me the right answer for it? And then he wants that question that the disciples are asking to be on our lips too. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who is this that even a legion of demons obey him? Who is this that even someone whose sickness has uh, overtaken their life for 12 years can find freedom and healing in him. Who is this that even a dead girl can stand up and walk and eat as a result of touching? Who is this? What do we do with all of our fears? Surely, our answer to all four stories should be, he is one who has power over nature, power over spiritual things, power over diseases, and power over death. And that's just the start, isn't it? Here is someone who can come into our lives whatever fears we face, and he can bring peace and hope and wonder and even faith, even trust. You see, the the thing that's really important for us this morning is that we see And we understand who Jesus is. 
All of these are stories, you might notice, where that happens in uncomfortable, that's an understatement, isn't it? Uncomfortable situations. Not scenarios that we'd want to be in ourselves at all. And yet, how wonderful the outcome for each and every set of people involved. Where they get to see and experience and understand who Jesus is. I love that. I think many of us would love it even more if Jesus promised us peace and hope and wonder and faith without having to go through any of the discomforts of life, without ever having to entering into a fear first for Jesus to transform it into something else. I think we'd prefer that method, but there it is. This is how Jesus works. This is how Jesus operates. This is how he helps us to see most clearly who he is and to flee to him for all of these things. The truth is you will experience fears in your lives. We started off with phobias, irrational things that you shouldn't be scared of. If you're scared of people with beards, come along, have a cuddle, have a tickle. Okay, I've used oilets, still pretty scratchy, but you know, you can do that. This morning only, one time off, you can come and have a feel. Like, you shouldn't be afraid of that. And all, I think, to be fair, all the stories that we've recorded in Mark 4 and 5, those fears, they're rational fears. They're sensible things to at least acknowledge and experience at the time. But here's the thing. When we see Jesus, when we understand who Jesus is, if we remain in fear, then they become phobias, don't they? Because they don't make sense anymore. Our fears in the presence of Jesus become irrational phobias. When Jesus turns up, all those things which sensibly we should be afraid of are supposed to melt away, are supposed to transform into something else because of who he is and what he has done. He is God, the creator, the sustainer of all things, taken on flesh for our sakes. One who is willing to enter in and to suffer Suffer in ways that we could never really understand or imagine. Willing even to die in our place. But one who is able to raise to life again and to say to those who by faith come to him, trust in him, you get to come with me. Here is an eternal life with me in glory. Like when we see and we experience that Jesus, all the things that are sensible fears phobias now. They're not things that we should be scared of anymore. So let me just really quickly finish up with a question. When we experience fears, and we will still experience fears, where should we go? Where should we go? I mean, we've got all manner of coping mechanisms. If, you, if any of those phobias at the start struck, struck a nerve with you, go to see Charlotte. She will give you techniques to deal with those phobias. We can, we can find those coping mechanisms in life, can't we? But surely the truest answer is whenever fear strikes, we should flee to Jesus. Fear bubbling up inside us isn't something that's reserved 
just for those people with specific phobias. It's not something that's reserved just for people who are, by nature, anxious and worriers. It's not just reserved for people who put value and worth in things that are the wrong things. It's the experience of anyone who lives in our bodies, with our minds, with our souls, in our world. It's for all of us. And the question each of us needs to answer is, where will we go with those fears? What will we do with them? Mark says, go to Jesus. Find peace, find hope, find wonder, find faith. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.